0: So with that, I'd like to just draw our attention now even to what uh, we're talking about, the theme of, of, of this morning in prayer and what Pastor Tom will be, or Pastor Matt will be preaching uh, in just a bit. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier that God desires and delights in his children coming to him and that we see repeatedly in scripture this, this command, this imploring to pray and to seek God in, in communion with him through prayer. And the answer is, so like, Why? Why does God make such a big deal? Why does the Bible take prayer so seriously? Uh, our, our painting this week, and we've been painting, uh, had a local artist paint uh, a picture uh, reflecting uh, on the Sermon on the Mount passage that we'll be preaching on uh, through the week. And this is the uh, uh, painting that was painted for this week. And it's obviously the door and has some hanging things. Uh, we'll talk through that. Basically, this captures all the why of why God commands us to pray. Uh, it's called Through That Door. And you see, the reason why God is telling us everywhere in Scripture, throughout His Word, to come to Him, to knock, and the door will be answered, is because God wants nothing more than to give you life. God wants nothing more than you to experience life in its fullness, and He knows in his promise that there's nothing in this world that's going to satisfy, nothing in this world that's going to ultimately bring that sense of identity and worth outside of him. So he implores us as his children to come to him in prayer, to commune with him in prayer. And as we do, as we go through that door in prayer, we learn love, we learn wisdom, we have prudence, there's discernment, there's peace, there's joy. And it's not that it's all peaches and cream all the time because it's not, right? Life comes at us. But see, the promise is that God is with us as we commune with him in prayer. And so that's the significance of what we're gonna be talking about.
1: Oh man, is that pure cuteness or what? I showed that to be emotionally manipulative so that I'd win you over at the beginning of the message. No, you know, you watch those kids pray and it's just so precious. It just, your heart just melts and fills up and overflows all at the same time. If you've ever been with a little child while they were praying, one of your own kids, you you just, you, you just can't imagine how you could love them anymore. They can't say anything wrong. I mean, their prayers are crazy. They're ridiculous. They're, they're, they're unanswerable, you know. But but in the midst of it, you know, you're sitting there looking at them and you see this, this sweet innocence, naivete, this, this freedom and creativity of thought. They're just this free flow, God is perfectly real to them. They are talking to God. And they believe it to their core. And as you're watching them and you're, you're discerning through their requests wisdom and foolishness and all these things and you're seeing these little flashes of brilliance, God pray that you give me more trials because I know that's how I grow. You hear these little children saying these things and you're just overwhelmed. You're blown away with how much you love them. That is exactly how God Feels about you. You know, when I entered into this passage this week, when I entered in, uh, to study and prepare, um, you know, I, I assumed that the message would be about prayer, and of course it is. And I asked people questions. Um, I always ask this question before I, I preach. I, I ask some folks, hey, if you, if you had one question about this passage, you know, what would it be? And they all turn to prayer. Uh, somebody asked, uh, what happens when I ask, I seek, and I knock? I believe I've done that faithfully and diligently, and there's just silence. God is just quiet. How do I get out of, out of the routine, monotonous, same old things prayer? I pray before my meals. I pray before bed with my kids. I, if I am work at a church, we pray before and after every meeting. How do I get past those monotonous, same old thing prayers? And then this one. How do I know something is an answer to prayer and not just luck or coincidence? And you know... the the, the place our mind first wants to go is to the mechanics of prayer itself. Uh, Formulas for well-rounded prayers, the how, the when, the where, the why, the how much. But that's not where Jesus takes us here. It's not where he goes. He goes much deeper than the mechanics to the foundation of this life of prayer. He takes us to a relationship with with God who is our Father. Now, don't just blast past that word, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be th- Don't just blast past that word. Jesus, a few chapters before, teaches his disciples how to pray. And you've probably memorized it if you've been around the church. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He give us this day... You just blasted past this... This moment when the God who has 955 titles and names in the Bible, his very Son, when asked how to pray, says, Our Father. He knows from the foundations of the earth that God is our Maker. He knows that God knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows that God is your king, that he has authority over all things. He knows that God is the righteous judge. That means that he has the moral authority and perfections to hold you accountable for your actions. He knows that. He knows that God is your shepherd and God is your teacher. He knows that God is your advocate and your defender. And yet, he teaches you to pray by saying our father, Now, why does he do that? Why does Jesus know about that? Well, because from all of eternity, Jesus has been the son of God. And when you watch his earthly ministry, that father-son relationship is by far the most dominant relationship that you see, by far. In the book of John, the life of Jesus as recorded in John, 112 times the word father Is invoked. And almost every time it is Jesus speaking to or about his Father. At the launch of his public ministry, this is really important. So Jesus, uh, he's grown up and he's getting ready to to start his ministry. He's been out in the wilderness tempted by the devil. He's overcome the temptation. And now John the Baptist is going to baptize Jesus. This happened all throughout God's redemptive story. There would be these moments where God would authorize someone as uh, his man, right? So he authorized Abraham and he authorized Moses and he authorized David and Elijah and all these people. Well, this is Jesus' big moment. And it says that God comes down in an audible voice of all the names he could invoke. This is my Messiah, this is the leader of my army, this is my problem solver, my movement leader. He says, this is my son. And he doesn't stop there. It's like he's watching this movie, he's watching his kids, he's watching his child and he says, this is my son. Whom I love. In whom I'm well pleased. Why does he bother to do that? Why doesn't he just say, this is Jesus, listen to him, he's the Messiah. Why the parenthesis? Because it's not a parenthesis. It's everything. It's everything to Jesus. It's everything about Jesus. And it's everything to you and me. We are the children adopted of God. And we know that because of the life of Jesus that he lived with the Father. So he says, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then Jesus' public ministry continues. And throughout his ministry, he has all these moments when he's talking about God as Father. There's this great one in John chapter 5 where he's going at it with the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And everybody's watching. And he says a very provocative thing to them. He says, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. And that makes them mad, by the way. They want to kill him for this. Who does he think he is? He's saying that God is his own father. It's scandalous to them to imagine God this way. Scandalous for the most part for any other religion, by the way. He says, my father is working until now and I am working. He says, you see, my father, the God of the universe, has a plan that he's enacting. He has a will that he's he's carrying out through me, his agent, his son. And then he says this, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. They are totally inextricably connected. The father will not succeed without the actions of the son. The son will not succeed without the will of the father. They're submitted to each other, working together. And what's fascinating is if you really watch this and read it, especially in the book of John, it's so beautiful because it's like this doting father and this proud son walking through life together with this amazing mission that's just impossible possible to fail, but with great perils ahead. It's just this father and this son proud of each other and of what they're doing together. That is the picture of the God of the Christian, of the God of the Bible. Jesus understands that his mission is not first as a teacher or a movement leader or even the Messiah. He understands that his mission is first to carry out the will of his father. Same as your mission. He walks with his father throughout his ministry and here's what it says. If you just kept these little things, you miss, It says he went off to a desolate place to be with his father. He went up on a mountain to be with his father. He got up before sunrise to be with his father. That's prayer. It's the fruit and manifestation of a beautifully intimate, totally integrated relationship with your father. Not just your king, not just your teacher and shepherd, not just your judge, not just your savior, your father. So then he carries through his public ministry. He gets to the end of it, and he ends up in his, approaching his darkest hour. Do you remember where this is? It's in a garden, and it's at night. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's a beautiful garden. I've been there. I've stood there. I've seen it. It's, it's beautiful, but it wasn't to him on that night I doubt he thought much about the trees or flowers around him or the the sweet aroma. I think all he could smell was the stench of death that would befall him the next day. And he falls down before God and he cries out. It says that he sweats blood. That's not just a metaphor, that's a thing. You can reach a level of stress and anxiety where you actually sweat through, bleed through your pores. And in that deep anxious state he cries out and who, and who does he cry out to oh god my king send the army no he cries out to papa papa abba father all things are possible for you remove this cup from me And yet not what I will, but you will. Do you see what's in play here? Jesus the man doesn't know everything. Jesus the man is not infinite in his abilities in this moment to understand. Jesus is crying out to God because he's afraid. Because he's weak. Because the task feels overwhelming. That's prayer. It's a legitimate prayer. To cry out to the Father. And then on the cross, the next day, out of this confusion and sorrow, he carries the weight of the sins of the world on his shoulder. It's part of his sacrifice. And what's his next prayer? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's prayer. He cries out to God and says, I don't hear you. I don't see you. As a matter of fact, it's even worse. It's not that I don't know where you are. It's that i looking for the first time in history. I see your back. I see your rejection. I see your righteous judgment on me. Why have you forsaken me? He cries out. Jesus knows the weight of your sins. He knows the weight of your prayers from sin. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. It's beautiful. He says, the troubles of the Savior were worse than yours. There are no depths so deep that he has not dived to the bottom of them. Christ has prayed out of the lowest dungeon in the most horrible pit. He's been in your pit and he's prayed for you there. But then he comes to the end of his life and what does he say next? What's his next prayer? It is finished. He's restored in that moment to his understanding and embrace that he has carried the load, that he has fulfilled the will of his father, that his mission is complete and he says it's finished. And then he says this, Papa, I come back into your arms. He says, Abba, Father, it is finished. And then he says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. So this is where Jesus meets you on this mountain. He doesn't say these words lightly. He doesn't speak to the strategy and mechanics of prayer. He doesn't care much about those. Here's what he knows about those. Those will come. Those are things we can study and talk about and ruminate over and learn from, but he knows that all those things will come if at first you understand that God is first your father. So he says this, he meets us there, and up to this point in this message, he's been confronting us. Remember that? We we talk about this upside down kingdom where Jesus is rocking our world, and we meet him up on this mountain, and we let him challenge our kingdoms about everything, and boy, he is pulling out all the stops. He's saying, listen, you can't understand the Father. You can't see God until you see and be honest about yourself. And then he lays it out, and he goes to our hypocrisy. He goes to our self righteous our self-righteous pride and judgment. He goes to our greed. He goes to our sexual selfishness. He goes to our looking for loopholes in the promises we've made so that we can get out procedurally. He goes to all of these things our religiosity, our phoniness before the world. He goes, boom, 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 and he drills away at those. But then he says, but then he has this moment here where, where he becomes sweet and tender. He becomes gentle and he says, Reason with me for a minute. Don't you know that you can ask, you can seek, you can knock? Why? Don't you know how to love your kids? Don't you watch that video and your heart melts? Don't you know, even you who are evil, he says, he says, even though all these things I just said about you, even though you're all these things, You're prideful, you're self-righteous, you're greedy, you're sex-selfish, you're, uh, you're a hypocrite, you're all these things. Even though you're all those things, don't you know how to love a child? And if you can love a child, don't you think that your perfect, loving, wise, holy, righteous, promise-keeping, creator of sex and all things amazing father in heaven knows how to do that? That's why you can Pray. And the amazing thing is that Jesus is the firstborn of God's adopted children, you. Do you know what that means? That means that you share in his rights and privileges. That means that as you see Jesus walk through this life with his totally integrated, missional relationship with his father, mutually doting on each other, that's what God has set aside for you. That is the privilege of adoption as sons and daughters of, of God through Christ. That's what you get. That's what he provides. In John uh, chapter one, it says this, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, the right, to become children of God. You're children of God, you're sons and daughters of the father of the king. And because of that, and from that place of authenticity and confidence, you can ask Seek, knock. You could ask, what does that mean? It means talk to him all the time. Formally, informally, in front of people, not in front of people, in a desolate place, in a crowded place. Converse with your father. It means to seek. What does that mean? It means to bring your case. It means to bring your legal case to him. Now, what's your legal case? Spurgeon explains it this way. I love it. He says... Use God's promises as your arguments. Use God's promises as your arguments. Now, what does that imply? It implies that you know your father. It implies that you know his will. You know his wisdom. You know what good things are in the mind of your father. And you know the promises and covenants that he has made to fulfill those things. And as you learn those things and you make your case from those things, guess what? your prayers become more effective, don't they? They become more effective. Build that case. This is where those stones and snakes come in. So it says if you ask for bread, if your kid asks for bread, you're not gonna give him a stone. If a kid asks for, for a fish, you're not gonna give him a serpent. Here's what stones are. Stones are useless things. Stones are useless things. You can ask for something that is useless and you don't think it is. What are serpents? Well, they're poisonous things. They're things that you think are good for you, but they're actually poisonous. They're actually bad for you. And it's in God's wisdom and discernment to judge what those things are and to answer them to you accordingly. Right? So think of it this way. Because this is what people get hung up on a lot. I prayed and prayed and prayed and it didn't happen. It seemed like a perfectly logical prayer. Um, You know, how, how could God deny me this prayer? Or just, I didn't like it. I didn't like the fact that I wanted it so bad and I didn't get it. Imagine if you were one of those little kids asking Jesus to bring back the dinosaurs. Except he was asking you to do that. Or any of those other prayers that were a little ridiculous or a little crazy. Could you imagine if your child judged your love and wisdom and compassion and existence based on whether or not you answered their prayers the way they wanted them in their timing? Seek, know your Father, learn His Word, learn His precepts, and hear His answers. You know, we always use these uh, 500-year-old theologians and they say these eloquent things, but I found one this week that I think sums it up pretty well from another perspective. If you can't find scriptures that covers what you're praying for, you ain't got no business praying for it. Know the word. So I ask, trusting that God knows how best to answer. I don't judge God based on his answers. I learn about myself based on his answers. So C.S. Lewis says, I don't pray because it changes God. I pray because it changes me. It's part of what happens in that prayer. It's part of how God becomes intimate with me. Righteous prayer is believing prayer. It assumes that the one you ask loves you, is attentive to you, wants the best for you, knows the best for you, and has the power to act. So if you ask for things that will feed your lusts, not going to receive them. If you ask for things that are not good for you, what you will hear hopefully is silence. And that's a good thing. So the last thing he says, he says, ask, seek, knock. I love this one too. I love Spurgeon's perspective on this one too. He says, knocking is expecting. Knocking is being persistent. Knocking is banging on the door because you assume that God will answer. Knock and it might, knock and it will if you have asked and sought. So here's the thing: you know, communication is a great litmus test of the vitality of a relationship, of the honesty and intimacy and unity and power and purposefulness of a relationship. Uh, You know, I do premarital counseling, counseling uh, people who are having trouble in relationships. Anybody who's ever done that, you know that about 80% of what you do is you just watch how they interact with each other. You learn a million things about their relationship by just watching how they interact. And imagine if somebody comes in and sits down before you to ask for counsel and all of their communication is one-sided. Only one does the communicating. Imagine if the only time they ever talk is when they need something. Or when they're angry. When they didn't get what they wanted. Imagine if they're, they're really afraid to, to talk out loud to that person. Or in front of other people. Imagine if it feels strange to them to express their emotions toward that person. Puts a different perspective on it, doesn't it? So now imagine that somebody who knows you is evaluating who God is and the nature of your relationship based solely on your life of prayer. That one kicked me in the gut this week, I gotta tell you. Prayer is the litmus test of our relationship with God. God. Prayer is the litmus test of our relationship with God. This is scary. It means you can grow up in a church. It means you can go to seminary. It means everybody can think you really know God. It means you can get up and speak eloquently about God. It means you can be moral and good in everything else and not know him at all. If you stop short of father, if you stop short of anything but father, you know as much as the devil knows it's what it says it's what Jesus it's what it says in scripture it says even the demons know that I'm all those other things and at least they have the sense to be afraid of me but if you don't know God as father you don't know him you don't understand what it mean, means to be an adopted child of God it's sobering or at the very least at the very least you've drifted apart It's vital to embrace that relationship with God, your Father, knowing that it's offered to you freely because of Christ, the firstborn, and what he's done, this work that is finished. So maybe this is routine for you. We're going to have a time of reflection. We do this every week. Maybe this is routine for you. Maybe you do it in your own life, and it's just another conversation with your Father. Maybe you've been getting into this, as we've started to do this the last several weeks, Maybe this is brand new for you today. This is the beginning of that journey toward healthier communication and intimacy with your father. But we're gonna spend a little time in reflection. Don't worry, nothing is imposed on you. Um, uh, we're gonna start to, uh, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna begin us in prayer in a moment. And while we do that, uh, there are gonna be some people, you'll see them pop up around the sides. These are just people that are praying for you. They're leaders, they're elders, they're staff. And they're just praying for the whole congregation. They're asking the spirit to be here, to be present with us and those kinds of things. They're also available to you if you need Prayer. If you need someone, you know, to pray for you, they're there to do that as well. And I'm gonna lead us through something that we call the rhythm of grace. It was in personal worship this week. Each day was a different part of the rhythm. The first day we remembered God, we praised him. We just sang praises to God that day in your devotions. The second day um, we confessed to him. We were, we're honest with him about ourselves. We gotta do that. You gotta be honest with, with your father because you feel far from him. If you're not honest with him. Even though he says he's right there. You feel far from him when you're not honest with him. You know how that is with your kids. You know something's wrong, right? Because they won't talk to you. So we get honest with him. We're going to do that. And then we remember that the father's love is there waiting. It's at the door. It's waiting to be lavished upon us. We rest in his grace. We remember what Christ has done. And we thank him for things. And then you take all this stuff that's been running through your heart and mind today, and you say, Lord, show me what to do with that. Show me what your wisdom is. You receive his wisdom, and you ask him how to have the courage to act on it, and you leave here taking a step, a gesture closer to that father of yours. So that's how we're going to pray. I'm going to leave a little bit of time between each thing. You can pray in your own heart. Uh, You can take any posture you want. We talked about that, that kind of everywhere else in the world but the West and, all in, and in all of history, people have adopted physical postures that reflect what's going on in their hearts. So if you want to, you can raise your hands. You can get down on your knees. You can just bow your head in prayer. Whatever is a physical expression of how you're feeling inside, feel free to do that. I'm going to judge you for that. We're just going to spend some time reflecting.